So we're in Revelation chapter 19, and um, <clears throat> I'm glad we're finally to the last few chapters. Um, we get to see the victories. Um, we get to see a, a glimpse of heaven. Um, we get to see the time that, that Christ will be here with us reigning. And so 19 through the rest of the book, really, um, <clears throat> is a whole lot more uh, good news. We have uh, we've spent many months now on basically what amounts to the seven-year tribulation. Most of the book of Revelation just covers the seven years of tribulation. But we are finally through all seven seals uh, that led to seven trumpets, that led to seven bowls. We're finally through all of those. And you'll remember that through the tribulation, particularly the last half of that time, the Antichrist um, set up a new worldwide government and global economy. And with the help of the false prophet, they set up a worldwide religion. Um, and then toward the very end, the Antichrist um, betrays that world religion, and so it falls. And um, then we read last time that uh, the the world the the uh, world government and the world economy are also destroyed. And what happens then is rejoicing in heaven. And uh, the first half of chapter 19, we hear that rejoicing because the Antichrist and all that he set up, the false prophet and uh, Satan himself, have all finally failed. And so there's rejoicing in heaven. The last half of the chapter is uh, Jesus' second return. It is the... Um, <clears throat> what we have always called the Battle of Armageddon. And that's when Jesus comes back and <clears throat> wipes out the, uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. So that's where we are tonight. In chapter 19, beginning at verse 1, we hear the uh, rejoicing that is taking place in heaven once the um, <clears throat> world economy uh, government and religion have all fallen apart. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah. It doesn't specify who the voices are. And by the way, it doesn't do that for us very many times in Revelation when there, we hear a voice or voices. It rarely tells us with great clarity who those voices are. But that we can make some fair assumptions. In this case, uh, the word multitude is often used to describe the angels, and I think the context fits. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is all the, the multitude of angels. This is uh, all of the heavenly beings just are screaming and crying out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah is a fun word. Um, the first half of Hallelujah is Hallel. And Hallel means praise. 
Um, often, if you, uh, when you look through the Psalms, especially once you get toward the latter Psalms, uh, past 104 and, and on, um, oftentimes you'll see the word Hallel used in the title, the first little uh, part of verse 1 or right before verse 1 of a Psalms. You'll see the word Hallel, and it means praise. Then uh, the last half of that word, most of the time when you see a Hebrew-based word, and hallelujah is based in Hebrew, um, most of the time when you see a Hebrew-based word that ends in J-A-H, you know that it's talking about Yahweh. Um, J-A-H is even more clear when you think of the Latin name for God, Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah is just the Latin version of Yahweh. Um, and you, it, it's, really, it's really interesting when you look at some of the names in the Old Testament, how they use the name of God, like uh, Daniel. See, the, it ends in E-L. E-L is the word Elohim, which is God. Um, Elijah, you see J-A-H. You see God's name represented in the prophet's name, Elijah. So, um, hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And technically, if you want to uh, do a very strict translation, it would be praise you, Yahweh. In other words, hey, you, praise Yahweh. So, hallelujah is a beautiful word. And by the way, it is uh, one of the very few words that shows up in almost every modern language. Um, in Spanish, you say hallelujah by saying hallelujah. In, in German, there is a German pronunciation of hallelujah. That, that word appears in almost, every major, um, in almost every major language today. So after I heard what seemed to be a, after this, he says, after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. Uh, <clears throat> he has just judged harshly um, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those who followed them. Uh, the judgments have been very harsh. Remember that we are really just now catching our breath after the last bowl. These, this has been the terrible, terrible judgments that came down on the world. Um, <clears throat> and those judgments are so harsh, and for the other reasons we've already talked about, uh, the religion and the economy and the government are destroyed. And so the, all of heaven breaks out and says, but what God has just done is just. It is true and just. Verse 2, For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And we talked about how um, that, that religion and that government were uh, symbolized by the name Babylon. And we talked about how... Um, they represented adultery against God uh, in, in a spiritual form. They were a form of adultery. 
And so here he refers to them in that way. He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And when he did that, he avenged on her the blood of his servants, which is reminiscent of um, a long time back, probably around chapter 11 or so, we hear the martyrs saying, God, how long until you finally get vengeance for us? And now all of heaven is rejoicing. He's done it. He avenged on her the blood of his servants. And verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah. They got themselves so excited, they even hallelujah a second time. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hyperbole, uh, which is... Which is a form of exaggeration, I guess. Um, but it's, it's talking about how you can see that the uh, Babylon has been destroyed. And the, 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 the smoke is still rising from her destruction. Verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. So the angels break out in chorus, singing Hallelujah. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures agree, Amen. Amen means, so be it. Um, and by the way, saying Amen is a biblical thing to do, so remember that every once in a while on Sunday, okay? It really is okay. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, that's true. That's right. So um, the angels sing hallelujah and the others around the throne. You'll remember that I believe the 24 elders represent all of the, the church. Those are, I, I think, believers who are in heaven. And the four living creatures are, uh, they, they are... Uh, probably seraphs, but they are specifically created heavenly beings that, that are not like any other creature. They surround the throne always, 24 hours a day. Of course, there's no time in heaven, but they constantly surround the throne, um, ready to move at a moment's notice to do anything God tells them to do. They are always at the throne of God. And so um, when the angels sing, the 24 elders and the creatures shout amen, and they sing hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, and I take this to be one of those four living creatures, <clears throat> uh, one of the four uh, seraphs that surround the throne. From the throne came a voice saying, praise our God. See, that's why it can't be the voice of God, because he's telling other people, now praise the one who is our God. God would not be God's God. Um, and so I think that if it's coming from the throne, but it's not God, it's got to be one of the four living creatures. From the throne, uh, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So there is rejoicing, celebrating in heaven because Babylon uh, has fallen. And uh, we covered pretty clearly what Babylon represents. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty 
peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. I don't think this is another, a different group of people. You had the angels singing, and then you had the, uh, the 24 elders, which I think represents the, the believers of all time, not just the church, but even the Old Testament believers. I think this is everybody. Um, <clears throat> and so you, you've already had the angels and everybody else in heaven. And so I think now they're just singing together. Angels started, then everybody else said amen. Now everybody in heaven singing together. That's, uh, that's, it's really not a different voice, but it is the voice of a great multitude, uh, the roar of many waters. And they sing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. You see, it has looked like for seven years, and specifically for three and a half years, it has looked like the Antichrist reigned. Everybody in the world saw him as the leader, religiously and politically and economically. He was the leader. And so now in heaven they're saying, we know who really reigns. Our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And we know the bride is the church. It's believers. And so he says, finally the time has come that there's gonna, we're going to get to celebrate the, the wedding. The weddings in, in uh, ancient time was, were so different than ours now. Um, a couple might be engaged for a very long time because their parents might work out when the couple was very young, perhaps, that, uh, you know, uh, my, my Susie Mae and your Bobby Joe are going to one day get married. And so we shake on it and, and uh, uh, pay you two goats and a critter, and it's a done deal. So they might be engaged a long time. But there comes a day when the groom shows up at the bride's house and takes her from the house so she's no longer under daddy's roof. Now she's under the groom's roof. And he takes her to his house. And when he takes her to his house, then there is a feast. And that feast might last for a week. Guests coming in from all over the place. The wedding feast is celebrating that although we have always been married we just now finally get to come together. And, and engagement or being betrothed was a whole lot more than, than just wearing a ring like we do it. If you were engaged or betrothed and you were going to break that off, you actually had to go through what amounts to a divorce. So in a way, they really were married once the agreements were made. But they just didn't get to get together until it was time for the feast. So you see, the church is the bride of Christ. We're married to him in that, in that symbolic way. Please don't, don't carry any metaphors too far, even biblical metaphors. But we are, we are in a relationship with Jesus. And scripture 
compares that relationship to a marriage. But for all of our lifetimes so far, Jesus has, has dwelt in heaven and we've been separated from him in that physical way. Spiritually, we're connected. We are married, but we don't get to see him face to face. We're looking forward to the wedding feast when he finally brings us into his home and we finally get to be married. Does that make sense? The closest relationship we, our brains and our emotions can understand, the closest relationship we get is the relationship of a marriage. And so I think God uses that as an illustration for something that's going to be much deeper. But we can't understand anything deeper. So he uses the deepest, closest relationship that we can get. Now, uh, before we go through this too quickly, um, coming from traditional Baptist theology and, and heritage, there's a, there's a point that jumps out at me that might not jump out at, at, at folks from other backgrounds, and that's fair. But I see it, so let me point it out to you. In verse 7, let us rejoice and exult, give him glory. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, because of our heritage, spiritually speaking, our spiritual heritage, we believe strongly that you cannot be saved by works, that that relationship between God and person um, can only happen through grace. Romans says it over and over. Um, you're saved by grace through faith. So how can the bride make herself ready? That sounds like the church is working to get good enough for this relationship. And, and, and just, I think, to make sure we don't misunderstand the point, look at the next verse, verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. In other words, in His grace, God gives the church what we need to be fine, to, to have fine linen, bright and pure. To, he gives us what we need to be justified, to be right with Him. It is grace. So it's not that you're going to work yourself into being a bride that's worthy. That was already granted to you. But since it has been granted to you, out of gratitude, you want to show that you're grateful for that grace, and you do that by making yourself ready for him to come back. Does that make sense? You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace, and it is the grace that makes you a clean bride. But because he's done that for you, it has changed your life so much, you want to serve and work and be a bride that is worthy of him. Right? Saved by grace. But that salvation is best demonstrated after the fact by our works. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. I might should have read that part as I was explaining that. 
Verse 9 now, the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, uh, we don't know which angel, and it's not important. This is interesting, to, to, again, to me uh, because of the symbolism of the number seven that appears so often in the book of Revelation. There are seven beatitudes, seven times that someone in Revelation says, blessed are. And this is number four of the seven. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I don't think that that's a separate group of people. I think, I think he's stretching the metaphor and saying, you have been invited by grace. You've been invited to have the opportunity to be the bride. So you've been invited to be able to celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. I don't know if John just kind of got, got so overwhelmed it would be understandable if he did. After all, 18 chapters of bad news <laughs> and terrifying visions. And then finally... We win and everybody's celebrating in heaven. He finally sees a different vision. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's just so overwhelmed he falls, you know, without really thinking it through. He knows you don't worship an angel, but, but for whatever reason, uh, he is overwhelmed by the good news and falls at the feet of the angel. And the angel says, wait a minute, I am a created being just like you are. Hold your worship for Jesus. Worship God, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened. Now, the last time he saw heaven opened, he's had a lot of visions through this thing, but the last time that phrase was used, I saw heaven opened, was the first heavenly vision that he had. He looks up and he sees heaven opened and then John is invited up to heaven to see the, the heavenly temple and some of the things that are happening up there. Now, heaven opens and instead of John being invited up, he sees Jesus coming down. And so remember that this is a, apocalyptic literature and it is just his vision, but in this vision he describes that Jesus is coming back. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Um, just because there was another white horse earlier does not mean it's the same creature. There could be more than one white horse, and I think there are. I think, I think this white horse represents uh, Christ in all his holiness and purity and power. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Um, we... We saw that name, faithful and true, we saw that name earlier in, uh, in the book of Revelation uh, chapter 3, probably verse 14-ish, something like that. Um, 
But in chapter 3, we saw him referred to as faithful and true. So we're familiar with that name. And then it says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So his judgment and the war that he brings is righteous. It's important for us to understand that, that what he's about to do is the right thing. His eyes are like a flame of fire, which I take to mean that he can see everything. He sees everything. We can only understand life from our own personal perspective. He understands all. He sees everything. And on his head were many diadems. Remember, diadem is a crown. Um, this many diadems just means that he is the king of all kings. He has, he has many crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. So we, we saw one name that the church knows, faithful and true. Now we see another name that only he knows. And it would do us no good whatsoever to speculate on what that name is because there is a reason that God is keeping it a mystery. I don't know why, but there's a reason that God decided not to tell us. There's a name that Jesus knows that no one else knows. And you know what? If, if you're the, the Lord of the entire universe, I guess it's okay for you to have a secret to keep from me. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That is the sign of a victor. This is not the blood of the cross. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood of his enemies. It says this, this guy is a winner. He is, he is the one who is victorious in battle. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. So we hear another name. The first one was the, the church knew him as faithful and true. We got that in this same book. There's another name that we don't know. And then he is also called the Word of God. That is, by the way, a very John title. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was God. The Word was with God. So what is the Word? You come on down to um, about verse 14 there in John 1, and it says specifically that Jesus is the Logos, the Word. And so we understand that he is the word of God. We call this the word of God. But in John's day and everybody before that, they didn't have this. They did have, however, the living revelation, Jesus. He was the word, the logos, the word of God. And so we understand that name. Verse 14, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, uh, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I take that to mean the armies of heaven. I take to mean the, um, uh, the angels. We've talked many times about how the angels are apparently set up in a military structure. Um, we see a number of examples throughout Scripture that we could play with one of these days if you want to, but there, there's, there, there's um, kind of a military structure. There's all the angels here, and then there's this rank, and then there's this rank, and then there's the cherubim and the seraphim topped with the archangel. All right. 
And so there is this military structure, and they're referred to many times in Scripture with military terms. I take this to be the armies of heaven are the angels. But notice, this is so interesting to me. They're arrayed in fine linen, speaks of, um, uh, speaks of, of royalty as well as purity, but white and pure. And they're following him on white horses. Jesus' robe is the one that is dipped in blood. He's the one who is going to be victorious over all of the enemies. The angels don't show any blood, nor do they carry any weapons. Because Jesus himself is the sole victor of the battle of Armageddon. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and uh, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. And it is that sword that brings defeat to his enemies. It is interesting and important that it comes from his mouth. Because when, when creation was first created, <laughs> the way that God created everything that exists was he spoke it into existence. And Paul tells us, and I believe the writer of Hebrews as well, that it was Jesus who was the instrument through which God spoke the worlds into existence. Um, there is scripture that says that nothing was made without Jesus. And when it was time for light, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And when it's time to destroy his enemies, Jesus will speak a word. We don't know what the word is, but he will speak a word, and from his mouth it'll be done and they'll be destroyed. That's the battle of Armageddon, by the way. It's not this great, long, drawn-out uh, Game of Thrones kind of an experience. He comes back and he says, you're done, and it's done. And then he will rule with a rod of iron, which means he is completely powerful, and no one will be able to, um, to usurp him. He will tread the winepress, uh, well, we've gone through that. On his robe, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. I really struggled with this. Why is he tattooing himself? I, don't, I did, couldn't figure out, he's going to write on his thigh. I, I, and then I, after I did a little bit of research, John MacArthur is a dispensationalist. So he's on the Larry Sparks side. All right? George Ladd is an historic premillennialist, so he's on my side, okay? These guys have not agreed on anything I've taught the entire series, except this one thing, and I'm exaggerating that. They probably agreed on some other stuff, but I thought it was interesting they agreed on this, that what is actually being described here doesn't show up well in English, but it is, the words are written on his robe and it reaches over his thigh, perhaps like a banner. So if you, if you read it a little bit different inflection, on his robe 
and on his thigh, on his, on his robe and as it goes over his thigh. Yes. So that made more sense to me than why he would write something on his thigh. Not that God has to make sense to me, but on his robe, on his thigh, he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we've, we've, we've had four names. Two of them the church is aware of. We understand him to be faithful and true. We understand him to be the word. Then there is that third name that we're not privy to. And then there is the name that the entire world will know him by. When he comes out of heaven, everyone sees him and sees his name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Remember, Scripture says that every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. They're going to see King of Kings and Lord of Lords draped across him. And they're going to know who he is. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. <laughs> Strange that an angel would holler at birds. What we're doing here is actually pulling from, uh, from one of the Old Testament prophets. I want to say it's Ezekiel. And he spends a, a whole uh, paragraph talking about how um, the birds will come and, and eat the flesh off of the dead enemies. And John is pulling from that imagery because uh, he, he knows the people are familiar with that prophecy. So the angel hollers at the birds, come gather for the great supper of God. Now, he's not inviting them to the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's saying, we're, fin we're fixing to wipe out all these enemies, and there's going to be a lot of flesh here for y'all to eat. So he's calling the buzzards and the vultures, and he's saying, come eat up all the flesh of the enemies. To eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Remember, it's been a long time, but if you could remember back to chapter 16, the sixth bowl, we saw that all of the armies, the, the river Euphrates was dried up and all of the armies gathered together. Well, then the other, the other chapters since then, we've been looking at other things that are happening and telling the background and all of that. Really, this is the, the last bowl all the kings have gathered to fight Jesus. Okay? And here is the battle of Armageddon, verse 20. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's the whole battle. Heavens open up. Jesus comes on a white horse. 
He reveals himself as Lord of Lords, as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The uh, Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire and with words or perhaps even one single word, Jesus wipes out all of the enemies and the vultures come and have dinner. There can be no question about his power or his right to rule. And that is demonstrated for us very clearly in John's vision there of how he will eventually avenge all of those martyrs and will eventually put down um, the evil one and his puppets. Um, Verse uh, chapter 20 gets even more fun. Um, We'll look more at uh, what happens to Satan in uh, chapter 20. That sets the stage for a thousand year reign. And um, in order for us to go through some of that next next time, we'll have to uh, touch very quickly on If the rapture didn't happen before the tribulation, this is where it happens, and what does that look like? I won't belabor it, but we'll talk about that next time.